0: Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Dave Sakara and Susan Jabinski discuss stock sectors to skip, Susan Jabinski shares her thoughts on undervalued stocks, Christine Benz talks estate planning, and David Harrell shares his insights on dividend stocks. Let's get started. Here is Dave Sakara from Morningstar Research Services with Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc.
1: Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. As we head into the third quarter, the stock market looks about 17% undervalued, according to Morningstar's metrics, and nearly two-thirds of the stocks our analysts cover in the U.S. are undervalued. Still, there are sectors that look less appealing to us today from a valuation perspective. Here to delve into the numbers is Dave Sakara, Dave is Morningstar's chief U.S. market strategist. So, Dave, let's dig right in. Um, in your quarterly outlook, you mentioned that uh, most of the sectors that investors would consider defensive, mm-hmm. which are healthcare, consumer defensive, and utilities, are about fairly valued, which mm-hmm. kind of makes sense considering what's been going on in the economy and all the uncertainty. So, let's look at these sectors one by one, uh, starting with healthcare. Talk about how that sector's performed this year. What do valuations look like there and why?
2: Sure. So you know the healthcare space, you know we've definitely seen a bit of a flight to safety as people are looking for those defensive stocks. You know again those type of companies where their earnings aren't going to be affected nearly as much by changes in the economy. And of course healthcare being one of those industries that you know if people need healthcare, they've got issues. They're going to prioritize that. And of course, you know, they're going to end up, you know, taking those services on. So we saw healthcare, I think year to date, it's dropped about 11%. So certainly about half of what I think the rest of the market you mm-hmm. know, has dropped at this point in time. But we think that the market is pretty fully valued here. It's trading pretty much right on top of that aggregated fair value of all healthcare stocks that we cover.
1: So Dave, let's talk a little bit about consumer defensive stocks, which they have also significantly outperformed this year. will talk a little bit about why they've outperformed and what their valuations look like.
2: Of course, so consumer defensive as you mentioned did outperform, although I'd say outperform to the downside in that, you know, the index still has dropped, you know, seven percent this year. But again, the consumer defensive area, when you think about the types of stocks that are in there, gonna be somewhat recession proof. You know, we've got food and beverage, consumer packaged goods, you know, supermarkets, you know, again those staples that people are gonna need on a day-to-day basis. So when we look at our valuations there, those stocks have generally held up, you know, pretty well. And we're really looking at it trading right on top of our fair values at this point in time.
1: So Dave, let's talk a little bit about the last defensive sector, which are utilities. Um, Now they retreated a bit in the second quarter after kind of coming out strong in the first quarter. So what happened there?
2: So as you mentioned, in the first quarter, utilities actually had a positive return, even though the rest of the market was down. Again, a bit of a flight to safety, people looking for those steady income earning type of companies. Now, the utility sector is the one that we think is probably going to be most negatively impacted by inflation. So again, when you think about utilities, they're price takers. They do not have any pricing power. They're only able to increase pricing when they're the regulators, you know, allow them Mm -hmm. to do so. So in the second quarter, as inflation continued to run, you hotter and longer than what people were expected, I think what you saw was some rotation, you out of that sector. And then secondly, you also have to remember interest rates were going up in the Mm -hmm. second quarter as well. A lot of times people use utilities as a fixed income substitute. So once we started seeing a higher interest rates, you know, both in the sovereign bond markets, the corporate bond markets, you know, I'm I would suspect that there were probably investors that were selling out of some of those utility stocks and putting those to work then in the fixed income space.
1: And then um, despite the pullback, we still think utilities are about fairly valued now, right?
2: They're fairly valued, although I'd say they're probably a little bit on the high side. You know, maybe four to five percent above you know, our fair values. So again, not getting to be you know so high that I would say you necessarily need to be selling the utilities. But probably a good underweight at this point in time in your portfolio. And again, if you are concerned about inflation, you know, lasting longer, you know, our base case here is that we do think inflation will start to moderate in the second half of the year. But again, that would be the sector that would be no- most negatively impacted going forward if inflation is going to be sticking around.
1: So Dave, the last sector we're going to talk about sort of investors perhaps skipping today Mm -hmm. is the energy sector, which is by no means defensive in nature, um, but it has had a a quite a strong year and those Mm -hmm. stocks are about fairly valued, right?
2: They are at this point. You know, it's interesting. It was actually one of the sectors that was. I think it was the most undervalued sector coming into the year. But considering how much oil prices have risen, you know, investors really ended up following those oil prices up and it bid those stock prices up. So right now, it's trading pretty close to our fair value estimate. There's still some opportunities there, maybe in the services sectors and the pipelines. But most of the producers at this point are either fairly valued or starting to get to be a little overvalued. So I think it's probably a good market weight position with in your portfolio, because there is certainly going to be a lot of volatility. And I think it's a good sector that, you know, if you were to start seeing that move back up again, you know, that's when you can take some profits, pair some gains on that one, reinvest that into some of the other undervalued sectors. And conversely, if you see a big pullback in energy, that would actually be a good time to start moving back into it on a more meaningful basis in your portfolio.
1: Well, Dave, thanks for your time today and your perspective on these sectors. We appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Susan Jabinski talks stocks top fund managers like.
1: Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. When it comes to investing, ideas can come from many different places. To uncover a few good investing ideas today, we're turning to the holdings of some concentrated fund managers that Morningstar thinks highly of. Why focus on concentrated funds? Concentrated fund managers invest in fewer stocks, usually between 20 and 50, and are therefore choosier about what they buy. And when they buy, they typically have high conviction in their purchases. The concentrated funds we looked at all earn high Morningstar Analyst Ratings, They are FMI Large Cap, Luma Sales Growth, Parnassus Core Equity, AMG Yakman Focused, Jensen Quality Growth, Oakmark Select, and Soundshore. Despite the fact that these managers practice very different strategies, their portfolios have several holdings in common. And today we're taking a look at three undervalued stocks that are the most widely held among these funds. So every fund on our list owns Alphabet. Google's share of the global search market tops 80%, making it by far the most dominant player in search. Google has generated strong revenue growth and cash flow, and we expect it to continue to do so. Alphabet also owns YouTube, which we think will begin to contribute more to the company's top and bottom lines. We think Alphabet has significant competitive advantages and is run by a strong management team. Shares look undervalued to us today. Four of the concentrated funds own Booking Holdings, which is the world's largest online travel agency by revenue. COVID-19 and inflation remain headwinds for the short term, but we believe Booking is financially healthy, and we expect its global leadership position to increase over the next decade as the company expands into vacation rentals, restaurant bookings, experiences, flights, and payments. And although big names like Amazon and Google might become competitors to some of Booking's business, We think they're unlikely to replicate Booking's network and model. Shares look undervalued according to our metrics. And lastly, four funds also own Microsoft. Microsoft has transformed itself into a leader in the cloud. The company has transitioned from a traditional perpetual license model to a subscription model. It's ditched its mobile handset business and it's moved gaming to the cloud. And as a result, Microsoft today is a focused company with impressive revenue growth and high and expanding margins. Here, too, shares are undervalued.
0: Next, here is Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. to share her thoughts on estate planning.
1: Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Morningstar's Christine Benz has created a month-by-month financial calendar. And for the month of August, it's all about estate planning. So if you're creating an estate plan for the first time or haven't checked up on yours in a while, she's here to discuss some key jobs to tackle in August. Good to see you, Christine. Thank you for being here. Hi, Susan. Great to see you. So, Christine, is is there a particular reason that August might be a good month for estate planning?
3: Well, I've typically slotted it into August in in my financial to-do list for the for the year because August tends to be kind of a sleepy month in contrast with the spring, which is tax season and year-end where we're often running around doing a lot of other things year-end related and we've got the holidays competing for our time. August tends to be a quieter time for many of us. Many people take vacation. And I also think the task of estate planning is something where people naturally need to do a little bit of reflection. So I think that It's potentially a good time for people to tackle this job if they haven't done it. And I did notice also, Susan, that August is National Make-A-Will Month. So um, that should be maybe an additional impetus for people to consider doing an estate plan.
1: Now, Christine, does everyone need an estate plan? You know, there might be some younger investors who maybe think, you know, they don't need to be concerned about this yet, or maybe other investors who don't have, you know, what they would think is a significant amount of assets who might not think they need to do any estate planning. What do you you think about that?
3: Well, generally speaking, I would say that estate planning is most appropriate for older, wealthier people, or maybe most urgent, I should say, for older, wealthier people, or for people who have minor children. I would underscore the importance of getting an estate plan done if that describes you. But I do think that there's this misconception that an estate plan is only for wealthy people because estate planning is really just about about laying the groundwork for your plans to go on, um, for your plans to be executed in accordance with your wishes if something should happen to you. So it really does cut across life stage.
1: And then a related question is, you know, over the past, you know, couple of decades, we've really seen sort of a proliferation of sort of software, online tools to sort of do your own estate planning. So is this advisable or should people really seek out to be working with a, you know sort of a live human being on crafting these
3: documents? It's a good question Susan and these programs have gotten better and more sophisticated. So I think it can be an economical starting point for people, especially for younger folks who have fairly minimalist situations just to get some of the basics done in a very cost-effective way. But one thing I think is important to point out in the realm of estate planning is that many of us have special situations in our lives, special needs or children with special needs or blended families, or perhaps there's been a death in our family or, or divorce. In that case, I think it oftentimes can be money well spent to sit down with an attorney who focuses on estate planning. He or she can ask you questions to help you craft a plan that really does address the particulars of your life. So what are the basic components of a good estate plan? Well, the key things I would say would be uh, at the top of the list would be a will, powers of attorney for financial and health care matters, guardianship, certainly for minor children. I would say really get on the stick if you have minor children and have not set up those guardianships and living wills. I think of those as being really the key planks of any estate plan. Um, And then from there, there might be other parts of the plan that would be a appropriate, but those would be certainly be the basics.
1: So Christine, once we have our estate plans up and running, how often should we be revisiting or reviewing them?
3: Well, I would definitely use life events as a catalyst for revisiting an estate plan. So marriages, divorces, birth of children, deaths in the family. Those should certainly catalyze you to take a look at your estate plan. Oftentimes, though, those are busy, challenging times for all of us. So I would put it on your list of items to review as you go through your annual portfolio review. Just ask yourself, well, has anything major changed in my life? Has anything major changed in terms of my financial accounts or my investment providers? One thing that we know is that sometimes people don't make sure that their documents sync up with whatever the reality of their investments is today. So uh, I would put it on your annual to-do list as as something just to kind of mentally reference and ask yourself whether there have been either big life changes or any big changes in terms of your financial plan or your investment plan and use those to catalyze action.
1: And Christine, this is somewhat related and is also one of your to-do tasks for us for August, and that's to uh, review your beneficiary designation on your financial accounts. Why
3: is this so important? I cannot talk about this enough, Mm -hmm. Susan, because beneficiary designations are so, so important, and it's stunning. I've talked to estate planning attorneys who have said, I've helped these people create this elaborate plan, cost thousands of dollars to set up this estate plan, and yet the beneficiary designations did not reflect what we put in the estate plan. And people are surprised to learn that beneficiary designations will typically override what is laid out in the will. So it's super important to make sure that those are current, those are up to date. Here's another area where if you've changed investment providers, you may have forgotten to make sure that your beneficiary designations reflected your current reality, reflected what you wanted them to. So check up on that. Certainly check up on your 401 plan. We see this a lot where firms change providers. So your employer may have changed investment providers for the 401k. You may have forgotten to check up on your beneficiary designations. So definitely put this on your annual portfolio review dashboard. You want to check those beneficiary designations annually to make sure they reflect your wishes.
1: And you know that digital assets are becoming sort of this increasingly important aspect of estate planning. So what are they and what steps should we be taking
3: to ensure that they're being handled in the way that we would like them to be handled? right this is such an important topic Susan there have been whole books written about digital estates. There are a few key categories of digital assets anything intellectual property related would count as a digital digital asset so that might be a a book that you have written on your computer music that you've recorded, those would all be digital assets. And then there would be social media accounts that would fall under this umbrella as well, where people may be surprised to learn that their heirs couldn't automatically start controlling and even shutting down their social media accounts, that there are special rules that each of these social media providers have that govern how they treat uh, those assets. So it's important to make sure if you're working with an attorney, if you're creating an estate plan to ask about those digital assets, make sure, especially if you have valuable ones, or even if you have sort of the plain vanilla social media accounts, like many of us have, make sure that you've created a plan for the afterlife of those accounts.
1: So lastly, Christine, you say now is also a good time to take a look at what you call the softer aspects of an estate plan. What do you mean by that? Right,
3: Susan, I've written about this topic and we've talked about it before, but there are a lot of things that are important to an estate plan that you won't necessarily discuss with your attorney, but instead should discuss with your loved ones at a time when everyone's feeling comfortable. And the the key topics I would hit with them would be your attitudes toward life-sustaining care. So you may have laid out some of that in your estate plan, but I would put some color around your attitudes toward life-sustaining care. Maybe your attitude is, loved ones, I want you to do whatever is going to give you the most But I would get specific about that with your loved ones, get specific about what you think your funeral or memorial service might look like maybe again, your attitude is I have no opinion on this I leave it to you, Um, your disposition toward your. Attitude toward the disposition of your per personal property, uh, things that you find valuable. You may even want to add a rider to your will that would dispose of those personal articles that you find most near and dear and dear. And finally, I like this idea of creating an ethical will where you impart to your loved ones your attitudes toward life, the things that you believe, the things, the experiences that gave you most value in life. I love the idea, to the extent that you're comfortable doing so, of creating a document that is non-financial in nature, but I think nonetheless one that your heirs, your children, grandchildren, other loved ones might find super valuable. Uh, to inherit from you. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and for your insights
1: into this really important topic. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Lastly, here is David Harrell from Morningstar Investment Management.
4: Hi, I'm David Harrell with Morningstar Investment Management. In this new monthly video series, we take a look at the dividend prospects of three stocks that are popular with income investors. The first name on our list this month is Enterprise Products Partners, which is a Master Limited Partnership, or MLP. Enterprise has increased its total annual payout for 23 consecutive years, and Morningstar analysts believe that Enterprise's ability to support its distribution through various market environments remains solid. Modest annual growth in the distribution rate seems likely to continue, and the partnership just announced a 2.2% increase for its next distribution. Next up is Haynes Brands. Now, Haynes Brands' dividend rate hasn't changed since 2017. While Morningstar analysts believe the company currently has the financial strength to boost its dividend, it doesn't necessarily have the incentive to do so. In fact, management has described the stock's yield as meaningful, as it exceeds the yield of many of its peers. So instead of raising its dividend, the company has been buying back shares in 2022, having decided that buybacks are a better use of cash today, given the stock's current valuation. While Morningstar analysts expect dividend increases to resume in 2023, any raise will probably have to wait until appreciation of the stock price pushes the yield lower. And lastly, there's advanced auto parts. Advanced auto parts boast annualized dividend growth of nearly 70% a year over the past five years. But the rate of dividend increases will probably slow down as the current annual payout of $6 per share is near the high end of management's targeted 35 to 45% payout ratio. But if earnings growth can approach consensus estimates for 2023 and 2024, there should be ample room for future dividend increases. I'm David Harrell with Morningstar Investment Management. Thanks for watching and see you next month. And be sure to tune in to my other monthly program, Dividend Stock Deep Dive.
0: That does it for this week's Investing Insights Podcast for Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal.